Man, Jay, it's been forever since we've seen the Starjammers. I know, right? I missed those wacky kids. I wish they turned up in more books, but they're so specific to the X-Men. What? No, they're not. They're all over space. I mean, they totally helped Hulk fight trauma one time. What, like a very special issue where he faces his past? No, it's a duel and... Oh, you thought I meant trauma the common noun, didn't you? Wait, so is he an incarnated concept? Like despair? Trauma? Nah, he's just a big dude from space. What did he have against the Hulk? Well, Hulk had been working with the Pantheon. Which Pantheon? The Pantheon. Well, no, I heard, but like, Asgardian? Greek? Shi'ar? No, 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 dude, the Pantheon is the name of their team. So they're not gods? They're part god. And they live in space? No, they live in Nevada, or possibly Arizona, it's uncertain. But anyway, Trauma kidnapped Atlanta because he wanted to marry her after she killed his brother. And that's where Hulk and the Starjammers come in, I guess. Exactly. Okay, so Atalanta's part of this pantheon, who else? Ah, uh, let's see. Ulysses, Prometheus, Perseus, Paris, Hector, Delphi, Cassiopeia, Andromeda, Ajax. You know, basically just pick a Homeric hero name, and they've probably been in the lineup at some point. Ah, okay, so they are Greek. No, they're Asgardian. What?! I'm Jay Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 165 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And welcome to space! That's right, it is a good old-fashioned X-Men space opera episode. Oh, I am so happy about this. After all of the Muir Island nonsense and, and Wolverine Wolverining around, and well, actually, no, Weapon X was terrific, but um, I'm really happy to be back in space is my point. Space is great. Space has star jammers. It totally does, and this episode does. But in the meantime, hey, we did a convention, and it was fun, and I guess if you listen to our feed, you probably heard that episode, so we hope you liked it. Yeah, that was intense, and I'm still reeling a little bit from that, but it was good, and our next convention is going to be New York Comic Con, and we are... We are still working out some details of, of the panel. It is probably going to be on Friday. There's a slight possibility that it might be on Thursday. And it will have either one or two really spectacular guests. Or maybe others. Who knows? It's currently kind of in limbo, but like nice limbo, where it's going to be one of multiple good options. Right. Not like, you know, limbo run by Belasco or Sim or whatever. No, we're solidly in the righteous unbaptized. Okay, I, I like that one better. Less chance of getting torn apart by demons. I mean, I'm not that righteous, but... Is, are there self-righteous un unbaptized? I feel like we'd both do okay there. <laughs> self-righteous unbaptized. That can go on the business cards. Perfect. But we digress immediately, as is our way. We're, we're here so to talk... We're so good at it. Oh, right? Uh, we're here to talk about X-Men. So yes, this is an Uncanny X-Men episode, so maybe we should talk a little bit about what's happened previously on X-Men. Following the tragic events of the Extinction Agenda, our scattered heroes have finally formed a team, or at least some of them have. They even have traditional, if extra sexy, blue and gold X-Men uniforms and everything. The uniforms are extra sexy because of influence from Muir Island, from which the team has recruited Banshee and Forge. And from Madripoor, we see Wolverine, Psylocke, and Jubilee coming on. From stealing stuff and generally being all around the most competent person, there are two of them, but one of them's more competent, Storm and Gambit. Right, so that's our current team of X-Men. It's really the most traditional team of X-Men we've seen in many, many, many issues ever since the team basically ended back in the Australia era. And it's wildly untraditional. This is a group with 
very little in the way of teen dynamics and a few members who don't really even consider themselves X-Men at this point, uh, some who don't really know why they're with the team at all. They've been thrown together in one place, they dealt with all of the Extinction Agenda stuff, and last we saw, Lila Cheney appeared abruptly and said, hey, I need you to come to space with me to kill Professor Xavier. And then they all teleported away. So that was surprising. And as a reminder, Lila Cheney is the intergalactic rock star who can teleport, like, across solar systems and galaxies and stuff, and she is awesome. She is also the official number one comic book crush of this podcast. Is she the number one crush? I don't know, there are so many. I mean, we decided a while ago. I guess so, but Storm's really, really up there. I feel like our feelings about Storm go beyond crush. That's a good point, yeah. Crush is too too small, too mundane of a word for our feelings toward Aurora Monroe. We know that she's too good for us, basically. Oh, forever. man. She's way out of our league, it's true. No, that's good. Like, that is that is one of those constants in the world that I kind of rely on. I want Storm to be that much better than me. It's sort of like I want the president to be someone who knows more about politics than I do. Like, people talk about how they want a president they can have a beer with. I don't want that. I don't want a president I could be friends with. My friends would mostly be terrible presidents. I can say that I would definitely be a terrible president. It's true. You really would. Wow. <laughs> it's a good thing I'm not. I would weep for the future. Instead, I'm a podcaster. And that's okay. Well, anyway, the X-Men are now... In space! Which brings us to Uncanny X-Men number 275, The Path Not Taken. Now, we discussed half of this issue in a previous episode. That was Rogue and Magneto fighting Zaladane in the Savage Land. Now we're going to talk about the good parts. You know, I really like the Magneto, Rogue, Savage Land stuff. Like, yes, Zaladane's a dumb villain, but it was such good Magneto melodrama. Yeah, but it could have been in space. I mean, I guess that's true, but think about it. Think about the way this issue would have been if you read it as it came out. It alternates between dinosaurs and spaceships. Yeah, but imagine Magneto having all of those complicated, dramatic feelings, but in space. Okay, you do make a compelling argument. I will grant that. Also, who says you can't have dinosaurs in space? I would never say such a thing. I mean, pretty much, Damn skippy. Pretty much every exalted game out there it includes dinosaurs in space at least a couple times. I mean, look, we all know I read Dr. McNinja. <laughs> there is that. So one of the things I like about X-Men 275 is the cover. It is a triple gatefold cover. And yes, we would end up with a lot of terrible gimmick covers all throughout the 90s, and maybe this issue is at fault for helping to start that trend, but it's so cool! It is so cool. Did, did you buy two copies of this when it came out so you could use one as a poster? I did not. Actually, I only started buying my own comics a little bit after this, like a number of months after this. So I don't know that I even have a physical copy in my original collection of this issue. I think I might have just read it on Marvel Unlimited. Dang. Okay, well, with that in mind, I feel like we should dive straight into the plot um, or perhaps teleport into it as, as is more appropriate to Lila's means of entrance. And we begin with the Starjammers raring to fight against the Usurper, presumably in this case Deathbird, who is protected by the Imperial Guard and thus obviously the Imperatrix of the Shi'ar Empire. And as a reminder, the Starjammers are awesome space pirates, led by Cyclops' dad Corsair, and Deathbird is the sister of Lilandra. Lilandra is Charles Xavier's girlfriend. Deathbird and Lilandra are both space bird jerks from the Shi'ar Empire. And they have collectively inherited the throne of that empire from their brother Deken, who died a while ago. Hey, hey, Mad Emperor Deken. He's got a title. Fine, Mad Emperor Deken. Thank you. In any case, Deathbird is putting up a fight. She's got the X-Men held captive by her quote-unquote manacle, which is sort of a big tentacle plant monster thing. It is. Uh, thankfully, it doesn't go in, you know, that direction. 
Now, fortunately for our heroes, the manacle can only counter one power per person, which is an awfully specific limitation. Okay, this is one of those things that only exists for the sake of the plot and is totally stupid and would make no sense to design something that way, but I love it because we get to see the different heroes, like, bust each other out of the manacle tentacles with their powers, and, like, I, I, any opportunity for team-up moves, I'm down with. Well, no, we see Jubilee bust Wolverine out, Wolverine cut Jubilee out, and then Jubilee cuts everyone else out with a spear, but we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves because Wolverine is still in really rough shape. He has had the shit kicked out of him repeatedly. And remember, this is in an era before Wolverine's healing factor was utterly ludicrous and was just somewhat ludicrous. So he took a while to recover from major injuries, and he hasn't really had time to do that here. Right, and in fact, the original plan that Claremont had in the 90s was to have Wolverine's powers get worse and worse until he died heroically. Good. Alas, we would not see Logan die for many, many, many years. I mean, we'd see him die, but, like, not in any way that stuck more than briefly. And he's still somehow on more X-teams than Laura. I know, well, that's old man Logan, but I see your point. No, fuck that guy. Well, anyway, the point is Wolverine's in very bad shape, and he's fighting Deathbird, who herself is a pretty fearsome purple warrior. And he decides to jump Deathbird. She she does not attack him out of this. She realizes that he's he's falling apart, and no, he just still jumps her, so she stabs him to death. Right. Apparent death. Um, but thankfully, he's pretty much okay. Getting impaled with a spear, I mean, it's not my favorite thing, but eh, could be worse. So he runs off after Deathbird, and Jubilee uses this the spear to free the rest of the X-Men just as the Star Jammers arrive for an epic team-up. At which point, Jim Lee gives us a two-page spread so he can reintroduce all of the characters, which gives us, as a podcast, a good opportunity to do a superhero roll call. On the X-Men side, as we mentioned, we have Storm, Banshee, Forge, Psylocke, Jubilee, Gambit, and sort of Lila Cheney, sort of. Representing the Starjammers, Corsair, Hepzibut, Ha'ad, Raza, and Lalandra. Hey, wh- where's Binary? Where's Carol Danvers with her awesome hair? She should be here, right? I assume that she has become too cool for this scene and has busted out to go, like, start a new star system or something? Well, we kind of maybe sort of find out why she's not here later, but eh, we'll get to that. So who are our heroes fighting? They are fighting the Imperial Guard of the Shi'ar Empire, which is composed of a bunch of different awesome aliens, and the X-Men have fought them a number of times before. Right now we see Gladiator, Oracle, Tempest, Smasher, Titan, Earthquake, and Bolt. And you can promptly forget about all of those except for Gladiator and Oracle, because they're not going to have distinct personalities in this arc. It's true. So what happens from here? How does the fight go? Well, the good guys win handily, and as it turns out, Professor X is now, in addition to Lalandra's main squeeze, her main warlord. Good? Probably not, because Professor Xavier abuses power a lot every time he has it. Wait, let's take a step backward, because the X-Men and the Starjammers just beat the Imperial Guard in, by my count, three pages, two of which were a single spread. This is the freaking Imperial Guard! They've kicked the X-Men's ass so many times, like in the Dark Phoenix saga! But were those X-Men equipped with extra sexy Muir Island costumes? I mean, I, I guess they weren't. Are those costumes really that good? I have no idea. Now, I assume going back and with what we know by the end of the arc that the Starjammers are fighting at somewhat above their normal abilities. That could be, yeah. But regardless, it, it bugs me a little. I kind of wish there'd been at least some commentary. I mean, when you have villains that fearsome just go out like punks, it, it sort of takes you out of it. It's like that time the Power Pack beat Sabretooth when Sabretooth was being written to be pretty much unstoppable. I mean, I'm not saying don't do the story. I'm just saying lampshade it a little bit. Tell us why things are different. So could the Power Pack take out the Imperial Guard? 
I mean, I think if they're being written this way, probably. And to be fair, that would be adorable, and I would probably love it, and I would probably like Katie Power even more, but... Katie Power sitting on Gladiator and insisting that he surrender, I feel like is something that we all need in our lives. I mean, if we're talking baddest little girls in the Marvel Universe, I feel like Molly Hayes, Princess Powerful from The Runaways, would be a little bit more fitting with something like that. Hmm. No. No, I think Katie Power would totally do that. I think she would be all over that. But... Back to the story. Um, Yeah, Charles Xavier is back, and Charles Xavier is back in Uncanny X-Men, and we haven't seen him here in, let's see, 72 issues plus annuals? Something like that, yeah. We saw him in number 203 briefly when Rachel Summers was doing her whole gonna destroy the universe to defeat the Beyonder thing and tried to absorb his life force, but the last time he hung out with, like, the team was in Uncanny X-Men 200 after the trial of Magneto when he went off to space and left the school in Magneto's care. Now, we saw him slightly more recently in, in New Mutants, around fi number 50, but he has been largely absent from the pages of the X-Books, and he's been up to some um, intense business, he apparently taking over the Shi'ar em Empire with Lalandra. Well, he's also been, like, doing some intense fashionista-ing. I mean, look at what this dude's wearing. Mm. We're used to seeing him in, you know, a yeah. jumpsuit or just a suit suit or whatever, but this, he's like... He's like Strife's younger, sexier cousin. I mean, he's got that spiky helmet thing and a real tight bodysuit with cool shoulder stuff and a cape. Is he specifically sexier because he'd be less likely to impale you if you touched him? I mean, I think he's sexier because you see more of his uh, more of his body. He's got that form-fitting stuff, that that black cloth, which is made of like Shi'ar unstable molecules. I would assume. I don't know why, but it always really weirds me out when people draw super buff Charles Xavier. I mean, I guess here it kind of makes sense because he just got a new body and he's been running around with space pirates doing space piratey stuff and I assume working out in space gyms. But like in general, he strikes me as a dude who does not do the... Well, I okay, no one is realistic in superhero comics and I know that and I accept that. But when everyone is drawn with hella super muscles, it's always weird. And he's the he's one of the guys to me who should have a basically civilian physique. Yeah, I would agree. And I mean, this is just something Jim Lee does. I mean, we've been clear that we really like Jim Lee's art, but everyone is definitely a bodybuilder when he draws them. And like, it's a superhero comic, so okay, but it can be a little much sometimes. Like, he should have super kick-ass shoulders and forearms because he uses a wheelchair, although it's usually electric, so maybe not so much. Yeah, well, and he's been hmm. uh, walking around for a long time at this point, ever since his body got rebuilt when he got brutified way back in the day. This is definitely the most I have ever thought about Professor Xavier's body, with, with the possible exception of, like, the week around which I read a comic where he was drawn by either Liefeld or Portacio, where there was something really upsetting going on with his pants. Huh. Upsetting pants. And that was less his body than, like, his possible undergarments and their structure? I mean, would you pay as much attention to these comics as we do? Sometimes you, you focus on, I'm not going to say the wrong stuff, but maybe not the right stuff. Liefeld crotches are a thing. God, they totally are. Well, anyway, um, Xavier's crotch aside, yeah, so he is now, he is now the Strike Lord of the Shi'ar Empire, in addition to being the consort of... Lalandra, the deposed empress, and they've been fighting a lot of stuff. And most of the X-Men think that's pretty cool, but one of their newest members, Jubilee, she's not so sure. Big deal. Way the old timers talk, I figured he'd be something real flash. He's just some ancient bald geek. This kind of reminds me of when Boom Boom went to Asgard and was just not impressed at all and was so over it immediately. Jubilee's like that with space. Yeah, Jubilee is impressed with no one and nothing, goddammit. Regardless, this is kind of a poignant moment. Xavier hasn't seen his X-Men in a while, and 
they're different. And he mentions how nice it is to see them all in their original uniforms, which I feel like should be the first clue that something's not right, because these are not the X-Men's original uniforms, and these are not the original uniforms of these particular X-Men. Yeah, but they are a variation on the original 60s X-Men uniform and the New Mutants uniform, so I kind of get it. And for me, this scene is heartwarming enough that I buy it. It's charming to see you, and in such a sexy variation of the original uniforms. And Storm, you're wearing, like... That's a lot of fabric for you. I feel like, you know, Xavier knows it's the 90s. He understands that things are different. That's why he got so buff. And so he gets that everyone's just going to be really, really sexy all the time. Back on the Shi'ar homeworld of Chandelar, Lilandra presents Deathbird's official abdication and claims the throne for herself, forever no take backsies. And it's party time. It is time for a big coronation party. The Starjammers are super jazzed. They're super into it. They've been working towards this for a really long time, and they're officially privateers, not pirates now, which is cool and means they're less likely to get executed. Also, everyone is so well-dressed. They're all in, like, these flowing, skimpy, again, it's the 90s, like, colorful, spacey, science fiction-y Normal wear sets, they look really good. Yeah, the Shi'ar know how to dress up, and they know how to outfit their guests, I guess, for parties. Now, the X-Men are a little bit uneasy, and Storm in particular is a bit suspicious. Because remember, they got summoned by Lila Cheney, who they know, who they, they know is their erstwhile ally, I guess more so the New Mutants. And she specifically said that Deathbird needed them to come kill Professor Xavier, and this has never really been explained. No one's really talking about this, so... Storm tries to bring it up, and Xavier and Lalandra basically say, eh, she's crazy, don't worry about it. And most of the X-Men accept that at face value, because they are not too bright when it comes to Professor X. So they're, like, drinking and hanging out with sexy space people, so they're having a good time. They are, and to the the benefit and or detriment of half the the team, apparently Lalandra's ascension to the throne and her relationship with Xavier means that Earth gentlemen are all the craze for the discerning single Shi'ar. Uh, except for Wolverine, and Wolverine is celebrating hot girl style um, by getting into bar fights. Ooh, you referenced the Justice League Unlimited Christmas episode. I love that episode. It is the only Christmas special that is entirely like sincere and, and unironic that I love sincerely and unironically. It is possibly the greatest Christmas special of all time. Well, anyway, he's doing that. Psylocke, in the meantime, is celebrating in her own psylocke way by showering and then getting kidnapped while meditating. But I gotta say... I mean, I'd like to run the numbers on just how much more often we see Psylocke showering or taking a bath than, like, we see any other X-Man doing so. It's because Storm is busy leading the team, so she's delegated public showers to Psylocke because she doesn't have time to do as many. That that seems reasonable, yeah. I mean, on the upside, Psylocke is probably very, very clean, and when you're running around getting in that many fights, I, I feel like showering or bathing a little more often is probably not the worst plan in the world. That might be the most you observation of all time. I, I'm just saying, hygiene is very important. Anyway. Which takes me straight to Arthur from the original Tick Live Action series. The, yeah, Hygiene is very important to me. I'd like to die with clean teeth. I would also like to die with clean teeth. I mean, I don't want to die at all, but if I'm gonna, then yeah, absolutely. Anyway, what are Gambit and Jubilee up to? Well, Gambit and Jubilee are sneaking off and getting lost. Or rather, Jubilee is sneaking off and getting lost, and Gambit is sneaking off after her as she gets lost, and presumably knowing exactly where he is because he keeps track of these things. But... They end up in the same place just in time to see evil Charles Xavier. By which I mean extra evil Charles Xavier, not just Charles Xavier who's a jerk and frequently abuses his powers, which is like baseline normal level evil Charles Xavier. Yeah, this Xavier has crushed Oracle and Gladiator from the Imperial Guard, and he's talking about using Earthlings for breeding stock? That's no good. And he closes out the issue by declaring that the X-Men will support him 
or be destroyed. And, you know, this keeps happening. Why do people put him in positions of power? I'm just saying. Well, to be fair, there is more context here, as the discerning listener and or person who's read this will realize, but still. But there doesn't have to be. Sometimes he just does this stuff. Yeah, it's true. Well, we'll find out a little bit more in Uncanny X-Men number 276, Double Death. Do you, do you remember that game show on Nickelodeon, Double Death, and then they had Super Sloppy Double Death? Oh, I was thinking it was more like Double Dutch with, with um, jump ropes. Now I'm just imagining a bunch of well-attired space people jumping rope really, really fast, and that, that's kind of great, actually. If they were in lower gravity, they'd be able to get really high and do fancy tricks. Well, I'm even more in favor of this plan. Unfortunately, we get some X-Men stuff instead, which starts out with Gambit and Jubilee hiding, watch her, watching Professor X continue to be evil. He's just taken down Gladiator, but now he's ordering Gladiator to rip off Deathbird's wings, which, like, for the space bird jerks that are the Shi'ar, that's a big deal in addition to, you know, delimbing someone. I... Got the impression that their wings were actually, or at least her wings were actually synthetic, that they were grafted on. Because not all of the Shi'ar have wings, and hers definitely look like technology. It's not cool anyway, and we should note that Deathbird, um, having been taken out by Wolverine, is, is likewise a prisoner of, of Lalandra and company. That's a problem. So we watch Gambit and Jubilee be horrified by this, and I gotta say, I like that we're getting this kind of focus on the two newest X-Men, especially the two newest X-Men hanging out with each other. And Gambit and Jubilee do have a fun dynamic. Jubilee sees Gambit as a creep. Because Gambit is a creep, and Gambit seems to be sort of entertained by Jubilee seeing him as a creep. Now, at this point, Gambit is also alluding to something that never entirely got followed up. He is collecting information on the X-Men. He is observing them. And it's not clear at this point whether he's doing that just for his, his own edification or for someone or something else. But it's heavily implied that it's the latter. And another little bit of continuity we get in terms of his motivations is when he hears about Xavier calling everyone his puppet, Gambit becomes enraged and attacks. That's what get, gets him to come out of hiding and enter into a probably unwise fight. Gambit hates puppetry. That's what it is. Gambit hates puppetry. But it makes sense that Gambit would, you know, be enraged by uh, seeing someone manipulate somebody else because of his own backstory with the whole thing with Nathan and the orphanage. But, you know, that's a different story. To briefly sum up for those of you unfamiliar, there was a possibility that Gambit was going to be developed as either a creation of or a effective puppet of Mr. Sinister, who was also a number of kids at the orphanage who Cyclops grew up at, because Mr. Sinister is everyone who isn't Mystique. Yeah, pretty much that. But regardless, there's a big fight, and it's pretty awesome, but it doesn't go too well until a wall is randomly bashed open, you know, because it's the X-Men and they bash open a lot of walls, revealing an imprisoned... No, it's not because it's the X-Men, it's because they teamed up with X-Factor and they learned from X-Factor, and now they just bust through walls instead of using doors. Oh, okay, so it was like an osmosis thing, where by being around X-Factor, they learned that doors were terrible and you should just smash down walls. And or they picked up their bad habit. Okay, well, uh, that makes some sense to me. But yeah, Lila Shaney's there, and she ends up teleporting away from the middle of the fight with Deathbird on Deathbird's orders. I'd like to take this moment to note that Lila's teleport sound effect is vamp. <laughs> it totally is. It so is. That That is so ridiculously appropriate. I'd like to think that she has to pose dramatically every time she teleports. I mean, with a sound effect like that, I would hope so. Well, anyway, with Lila and Deathbird having vamped their way out of the fight, Gabbit and Jubilee realize they're not going to win this, so they combine their powers to basically blow everything up in a very noticeable way. We need to come up with a name for this team-up move, because it's distinct enough that it looks like they're going to keep making it a thing, although it does kill a number of people, I think. I, it's kind of unclear. The, the 90s didn't worry too much about collateral damage. So what do we call this? Because it's it's Jubilee just spraying out a broad range of her fireworks while Gambit charges and throws 
handfuls of tiny rocks. Okay, so it's like shrapnel with kinetic energy, with fireworks. Oh, no, no, I've got it. Simple. Easy. It's Pop Rocks. It's totally Pop Rocks! Jay, that is one of my favorite things you've ever said, and there are a number of favorite things of mine that you've ever said, so congratulations. Yeah, that was totally off the cuff. I am pretty proud of it. Well done. Okay, so the Pop Rocks are visible and audible from pretty much everywhere, including Space Bird Lowtown, which is where Wolverine and his sudden alien date, because remember, uh, human males are, are real sexy to the Shi'ar these days, uh, are hanging out. Well, no, Wolverine isn't doing isn't specifically sexy because he's human, he's sexy. Sexy because he's doing Robert E. Howard protagonist Night on the Town. Yeah, lots of bar fights, which uh, I guess some people are into that. Not my personal style. Lots of bar fights and his costume hanging from him in minimal shreds and a beautiful woman on his arm who's been raising as much hell as he has, etc. And there are certain genre requirements wherein if you are such a character, the world will provide. That seems entirely reasonable. Well, anyway, they head toward the palace to investigate what's up, or at least Wolverine does. Similarly, Stormforge and Banshee, in their sexy fancy clothes, do the same, and they all find Charles Xavier, who has apparently survived an assassination attempt by Deathbird. That's the whole story that he tells. Bullshit. Yeah. Uh, clearly, we the readers see Xavier's covering something up, and given his villainous speechifying, I mean, that's consistent, right? What, covering something up? This is a man who fakes his own death when he gets bored, so, um, yes? Right, but he's doing it in, like, a way more evil, cruel way. Like, Xavier is seldom cruel. He usually at least rationalizes why whatever he does is actually for the best, and this guy isn't worrying too much about that. Wolverine, meanwhile, is stalking around in his, still in, in his tatters, um... In, in Storm's words, prowling around. Dude, that just makes me think of, like, a cat who's doing the hunting pose, and it's just, like, shaking its butt a whole lot while it stares at everything, and I'm just imagining Logan doing exactly that, and it's adorable. Or it could be our cat who, who just sort of looks at something and then falls over. That is also adorable to imagine Logan doing. Logan as a fail cat is, is, is a really great, like, Logan as a competent cat would be okay, and it's funny, and Kate Beaton's done some funny comic strips, but, like, Logan as a cat who's completely shitty at cat stuff is so much funnier. I like everything about this plan. So yeah, I'm imagining Logan just like sleeping on the arm of a sofa and then just sort of gradually falling off <laughs> and waking up mid-fall and sort of trying to catch himself and failing. He's like trying to climb up on a couch, but he can't jump quite far enough. And so his claws are snicking into it, like cutting it more and more, but he's just like scrambling and still can't make it. Logan just sort of following a moth, but not quite knowing what to do with it. So just sort of trying to pat it a little gently and confusedly. And then it flies, and he just looks really betrayed. <laughs> I love everything about this. Oh, but anyway, uh, Psylocke asks if the butt-shaking Wolverine is looking for something. To which Wolverine responds, Not anymore, Psylocke. I got what I need, and I know what I gotta do about it. And with that, he snicks out his claws and kills Xavier in the neck. Yeah, and it is brutal. I mean, it's the usual Jim Lee bloodless violence where there's, like, generic shredding but not a lot of actual gore. But just the impact and the framing and the faces really sell. Like, Xavier is less of a body. So here's the thing. Xavier is also wearing a great big stone medallion at his throat. And to me, it looked like Wolverine had just cut that away, that there was something going on with that. I didn't realize for a little while that he was actually supposed to have killed Xavier at this point. Yeah, that is a downside with the way that Jim Lee portrays violence, and honestly, with the way a lot of artists in the 90s portray violence, you can tell that some horrible shit is going on, but seeing the specifics of what's up, that doesn't always come through. I mean, maybe that's for the best. I'm not really a gore fan myself, but it can be a little confusing, like you're saying, Jay. Now, everyone on the ground is horrified because Wolverine just totally murdered Professor Xavier. 
Um, and Lalandra orders the Starjammers to immediately seize the remaining X-Men when suddenly Lila, Cheney, and Deathbird show back up. Right, they blow up a nearby wall because that's all the rage right now, and we see them covered in space futuristic body armor with huge goddamn guns, and I love Lila's dialogue here. We're back! Two bad, beautiful babes with really big guns. Congratulations, Lila Shaney. You just summed up this entire era of not only X-Men, but also comic books. I kind of feel like Lila Cheney can get away with that. Like, who, who are you going to tell her to not use genre-appropriate dialogue when she feels like it. Oh, I have nothing bad to say about this. To clarify, this is awesome. I mean, we talk a lot of shit about the 90s, but they're also a ton of fun. She's also doing all of this in a goddamn amazing 80s party dress. It's so wonderful. This is actually one of my favorite eras. It is strapless. It has a floofy, super short tulle skirt. It's, it's, it's terrific. It looks like something out of Wayne's World. It's lovely. It's great, and that's one of the reasons I like the early 90s in a way more than the rest of the decade, because you still have a lot of the late 80s stuck in there, and they were so much fun. It's a good hybrid era. Your definitions of good are, are intriguing and novel to me. You keep Christmas in your way, and I'll keep it in mine, Jay. All right, uh, have fun with all that neon, buddy. Oh, I will. Well, anyway, there's a lot of explosions and a lot of punching, and Lila and Deathbird teleport away with Storm, Banshee, and Forge. Not Psylocke and Wolverine, because they were conveniently too far away. Now, Psylocke, from the start, has been on Professor Xavier's side of this fight. It's worth noting. And Lilandra's Chamberlain, of whom we've seen very little up until now, orders Psylocke to erase Lilandra's memory of the death of Charles Xavier, then incinerates Xavier's body and orders the Starjammers to retrieve Storm and Lila, but kill the others. So that's a thing. That's right. It is another evil Chamberlain, almost as common as evil Chancellors. I think my favorite evil Chancellor is from Chrono Trigger. Do you have a favorite evil Chancellor or evil Chamberlain, Jay? I love them all equally. That's fair. That's a diplomatic answer. And, you know, they're Chancellors and Chamberlains, so they would appreciate diplomacy. It's important. <laughs> right? So, okay, you mentioned that, that Lila had the vamp sound effect earlier. That's good, but almost as good is the poink with which they appear on the planet they've now teleported to. This is Epsilon Sikosha 9. This is the devastated homeworld of the p -der. Right, you remember the Pinder? Those were those aliens we briefly saw about ten issues ago, when one of them, they're sort of like these gargoyle pterodactyl dudes, uh, mentioned that the Shi'ar champion, who we now know as Xavier, had defeated him and then enslaved the entire race. It's all coming together. This new Xavier is so, so evil. Man, Professor Xavier is a jerk. <laughs> right, Kitty didn't even know about the enslaved race of pterodactyl people when she said that. The pterodactyl people? I'm not sure if that makes it worse or better. That's a good point. Pterodactyls are kind of jerks themselves. Well, the Pinder seem pretty nice, at least. But this is some tragic shit, because this world is just devastated. Like, everybody on it is either dead or enslaved and thus gone. Everything's in ruins. There's smoke rising up from all the settlements. And Forge looks at all of this. I mean, Forge, the Vietnam veteran who's seen horrible, horrible stuff, and he can't really handle it. No matter how much we grow, how mature we fancy ourselves... Civilization ends up being no more than a veneer. Strip it away. We're all like Wolverine at heart. And he kneels at a literary appropriate discarded child's doll and is 
very sad. But I like this about Forge, because he can be an aloof jerk. I mean, the first time we really got to know him during Life Death, he had pulled himself back from the world, he just didn't want to deal with anything, he just wanted to invent stuff in his sweet, awesome techno apartment. But... I always got the impression that part of why he was so removed is because he just takes people's pain. He takes people's suffering so personally. He's just so empathetic toward it. And I I get that. You know, it makes sense, and it makes me really like Forge even more than I did. He's got a very strong sense of right and wrong, even when he removes himself from direct involvement with it. He totally does. But yeah, Deathbird explains, yeah, this and other worlds were annihilated— but she wasn't the one that did it. She was framed due to her reputation by, that's right, Xavier. Banshee is still suspicious, but Storm believes Deathbird. Uh, Xavier claimed back on the on, on Chandelier that he hadn't seen Jubilee or Gambit when he was attacked. But Storm found Jubilee's earring in Wolverine's hand. Right, which I gotta say, we've never really seen a purpose to those awesome round earrings with Jubilee's name in them. Now there is one. They're excellent, you know, breadcrumb trails. Or like those little uh, leaves from Lothlorien that the hobbits had, and then the other Fellowship members found it that one time. Exactly like that. Exactly like that. So... They were gifted to her by Galadriel. Right. I I thought you were going to say Galactus, and then I just pictured Galactus, but in, like, Galadriel's gown all sparkling and stuff, and and played by Kate Blanchett, and it was pretty great. Okay, Kate Blanchett, I realize Kate Blanchett is busy being Hela, but she would be a kick-ass Galactus. She really would. I mean, there's nothing to say that Galactus has to be a dude, and as long as you have somebody imposing and dispassionate, it would work, and Blanchett would do that really well. And we've already seen from her role as Hela in the previews for Thor that she wears a hat well. Yeah, no, Galactus really just needs to wear a hat well and have gravitas and I guess like eating planets, which I feel like she could do. She's she is she is an actress with with wide range. It is surprisingly easy to picture Kate Blanchett eating a planet. I mean, it helps that her last name is sort of a slant rhyme with planet, sort of. So listeners, we do video chat with each other when we record so we can like cue off each other visually, and Jay just has this delighted frozen smile on their face right now and it's pretty great. You're reading mystified as delighted, but I mean, in this context, they're functionally pretty interchangeable. Anyway, shall we return to our heroes on their distant planet, unmenaced by Galactus or Kate Blanchett? Uh, well, we almost can do so because who they are menaced by is the Starjammers, who are in orbit above, pondering how to murder everyone. What's up with them? Like, they seem as evil as Xavier. Dick move, Starjammers. Right, the Starjammers are normally awesome, so this is especially sad. Well, they watch the planet below, on which the heroes are flying around in these, like, super fancy high-tech jetpacks and floating motorcycles and sidecars and stuff. Um, I think you mean sky sleds. Forge is fairly specific about that. That's a valid point. And so, yeah, apparently Forge used some random scrap material to build all this stuff, but in, like, what, an hour? Okay, we've seen Forge build awesome things relatively quickly, but I gotta say, building incredibly advanced, like, Steve Jobs, Apple-era polished stuff? I think that's beyond even Forge in that short an amount of time. He's really gotten a 90s power upgrade here. Unfortunately, if it's Apple under Jobs, that means that despite being seamless, it's functionally irreparable if it breaks. Oh, that's true. Well, you know what? During the Jobs era, it was a little better than during the Cook era. Now you have, like, RAM soldered to motherboards and stuff like that. It's it's not great. I'm just saying, I encounter this in my day job regularly. You tried, bro. Well, anyway, point being... Uh, Deathbird, as our heroes fly around dramatically, is hit with a telepathic something or other, and does what she does in this arc, which is to command Lila Cheney to teleport her away. So they all disappear, leaving the other three heroes basically in the lurch, fighting a giant goddamn spaceship. When you say they all, you just mean Deathbird and Lila, right? Right, yes. They left, and Storm and Banshee and Forge are left to deal with fighting the Starjammer, which is small for a spaceship, but like, a small spaceship is still pretty damn big compared to three people. 
Meanwhile, on the Shi'ar homeworld, an inexplicably naked Jubilee is uh, being being imprisoned in, in, in some sort of techno web, uh, along with naked Wolverine, Starjammers, Carol Danvers, apparently, and the also Psylocke and, and Charles Xavier. So suddenly everything starts to make sense. All the people who have been acting creepy are already imprisoned in this naked techno web, and our newly captured heroes are being put there as well. So in the web and already duplicated, we've got Psylocke. We had Professor Xavier, but he's his his doppelganger has been killed. He's still in the web, though. Wolverine doesn't have a doppelganger yet, but we assume he's going to get one. There's the Starjammers are in there. Carol Danvers is in there, but hasn't been duplicated. I assume they just couldn't replicate Binary's power. I think they kind of forgot about her, and in fact, you don't see her close enough, and she isn't mentioned by name, but Jubilee mentions a blonde round eye who I guess is probably Carol Danvers? I don't know. I mean, it... Could just be someone the Starjammers had picked up who was riding around with them for that bit. Their crew changes out pretty regularly. But yeah, she's probably the best bet. Yeah. Well, anyway, and to make it very clear what's going on during this scene of bad stuff happening, the Chamberlain, who is already a super jerk, turns into a Skrull. Well, arguably the, ch- the scroll who was posing as the Chamberlain turns back into himself. Yeah, so the scrolls, in case you're not familiar, they're this sort of race of green, knuckle-chinned-looking alien shapeshifters. They're usually Fantastic Four villains. They're usually super, super jerks. Secret invasion is all about them. It totally is. Now, the scrolls could never mimic superpowers, unless they were the super scroll, without captive sources to draw those powers from, so this makes sense. Everybody who's imprisoned, they have a doppelganger, the doppelganger has their powers, that's just a little harder to detect, there you go. So, doppelganger Psylocke uses fancy scroll technology to turn the Chamberlain into a new Charles Xavier, complete with powers after which he kisses Lalandra in order to effectively, I think, imprint her onto him so that she'll always think he's the real Xavier. Man, we didn't have enough things to make this Xavier evil. We also needed, like, weird consent issues. Come on, Skrull, it's almost like you're an inherently evil alien race, apparently. The consent issues have been there from the start because he's hooking up with the Lalandra under the pretext that he's someone other than who he is. Oh, right, it was like that part that sort of ruins Revenge of the Nerds for me. Sort of hell. Completely ruins Revenge of the Nerds for me. There are a couple things that can ruin Revenge of the Nerds. I suppose that's true. But on that cliffhanger, we go into Uncanny X-Men number 277, Free Charlie, which I sort of love as a title for the issue. Yeah, that's that's quite a title. (laughs) Well, what this also is, is the end of the last full Chris Claremont arc in Uncanny X-Men, and the last issue on which Jim Lee is the regular artist. And it's the climax of a story, so that kind of makes sense, but yeah, we'll see Chris Claremont do some more issues here and there, we'll see him do the relaunched X-Men volume 2, but... This is the end of his almost uninterrupted run since, like, the 70s. Well, shit. I know, right? But at least we open with a sweet two-page spread of Storm, Forge, and Banshee in their rad space get-ups, being zapped by the Starjammer, which has never looked cooler. Like, it's three heavily armored space mutants fighting a goddamn spaceship in front of a big planet, and, like, I just kind of want to get this on black velvet and put it on my wall. So Storm, speaking of of black velvet appropriate moments, Storm is close enough to the atmosphere to use her rad weather powers and Forge unfortunately gets knocked off. Actually, no, his 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 space bike just gets completely blown apart when she does this. But he is able to latch on to the Starjammer itself by use of a cleverly concealed grappling hook because Forge is secretly Mabel Pines. Now I like him even more. Oh, dude, I just finished Gravity Falls. It's so good. Oh, you finally finished it. Yes. Yes. Are you having all the feelings? I am. The ending was like 
perfect. I wouldn't have changed anything about it. It was such a wonderful three-parter to close it out with, and I saw everything I wanted to see and things I didn't even know I wanted to see. Oh, and Chekhov's grappling hook. I know, right? Oh, it was so great. Uh, listeners, if you haven't seen Gravity Falls... That show is distilled perfect. If you haven't seen it, forget everything we just said. Watch it from the start. It's lovely. It's amazing. It's beautiful. You should watch it, and then watch it again. And the podcast will be here when you get done. But anyway... uh. Up in space on the Starjammer itself, Gambit, who is apparently stowed away, interrupts the Starjammer's attempted space murder with a nice charged ace of hearts, and there's a great big fight during which Hepzibah, who refers to Gambit as Jumpin' Jack Flash, which I kind of love, turns into a scroll. Now Gambit knows what's up to. So, serious question about Gambit. Do you think that his decks of cards are actual decks of cards, or that he just stacks them with the ones that'll look extra dramatic when he charges and throws them, like, in close-up moments? Like, it's all Queen of Hearts, Ace of Hearts, you know, King of Diamonds type stuff. It's true. You usually don't see him throwing, like, the Seven of Clubs or something like that. I mean, nothing against the Seven of Clubs for all you Seven of Clubs fans out there. Well, the cards would presumably be interchangeable, at least for charging and throwing purposes. But again, this is Gambit. This is the thief who wears metal boots and and fluorescent magenta. So obviously he's more about flash than substance. Right. Well, and also if he did use boring cards, that would have uh, prevented one of my favorite lines from the X-Men animated series, which is a sentinel saying, It appears to be the ace of spades. And then blowing up. But how much funnier would that moment have been if the sentinel were saying, It appears to be... The Seven of Clubs. You know, you do make a valid point, I suppose. I'm going to have to think about that one. I'm going to have to think about the relative humor of Sentinels getting blown up by different cards from a standard deck. It'll be a nice break from thinking about Professor Xavier's physique. Yeah, yeah, there is that. It's nice to take breaks occasionally, at least. So inside, Forge has infiltrated using his grappling hook, and he ponders, and I love this dialogue here. Okay, I'm aboard and alive and in one piece. That's good. Only I'm all alone. That's bad. This nexus allows me to access the ship's prime computer. Waldo, that's good. Only, I haven't got a manual. That's bad. But it comes with a free Frogert. That's good. The Frogert is also cursed. That's bad. Suddenly, the Starjammers are here. And there's a great big Donnybrook between the two sides, complete with Banshee yelling, Blast and botheration! Okay, on a scale of 1 to 10, how excited were you to work in the word Donnybrook? I mean, pretty excited. I'm not gonna lie, I've been using the word Donnybrook a lot more since I've been listening to Tighten Up the Defense because Hub says it beautifully, but it's great. Although, is Donnybrook an Irish word? I mean, I think it is. It sounds like an Irish word, and Banshee's Irish. I wish you'd asked before and I could have looked it up, um, but I I suspect that there, there one, one can find its etymology pretty easily online. I should say, by the way, speaking of Tighten Up the Defense, that since our last episode went up, um, our crossover with them from Rose City Comic Con is also on the air. That is on their site. I will link to it in the visual companion to this post. It's rad. We talk about weird forgotten continuity. There are song lyrics and picket signs. It's pretty intense. I I can't remember all of what we did. I, I know Corey and I did a lot of trivia while you were trying to set up the the recording equipment. <laughs> it was pretty great. Um, but meanwhile, in the Donnybrook here, the Starjammers are talking about how frail and awful and dumb humans are, which is kind of suspicious, because, like, one of them is a human, and the rest of them seem to like that human. What's even more suspicious is when they all turn into the knuckle-chinned green scrolls that they really are. Okay, to be fair, the other Starjammers give Corsair shit constantly. I guess that's a good point. But yeah, no, they do actually turn into scrolls, so... 
So, in the meantime, what happened to Deathbird and Lila since the last time they randomly teleported away, leaving everybody stranded? Well, it turns out they've gone to the mall. But, like, not that mall. This one is spelled M-A-U-L, which is a little disappointing because having them do a shopping montage, especially since one of them is Lila Shaney, would have been delightful. Well, and the other one is Deathbird. That right? would be so good. I would be all over that. That's brilliant. Deathbird would be very fashionable, I feel like. Very dramatic. A lot of big shoulder pads and stuff. Ooh, yeah, she would be very, very into late 80s, early 90s fashion in general. The question would be whether she could find stuff that would interact appropriately with, like, where she's got feathers and weird spikes. Yeah, and also how many salespeople she would murder in the course of this event, I suppose. Look, man, you can't make an omelet without killing a few people. I've been making omelets wrong. Damn. Well, anyway, this mall with a U is where that tentacle monster manacle thing is, where all of the imprisoned heroes are actually being kept. So here's the thing. This is called Manacle, but it's different from Deathbird's thing called Manacle that imprisoned the X-Men at the beginning of this story. It's somewhat confusing and unclear, but what's completely clear is the fuchsia-clad, open-shirted evil Xavier right here with some evil X-Men and the Imperial Guard. He's evil and sexy. Like, is the Shadow King around or something? I mean, come on. Well, we've we've seen him sexy before. We we saw him after after the the Morlocks revived him and dressed him in bondage gear. And we've certainly seen him evil a number of times. But this combination, I mean, that's got a mal for rook written all over it. Or scrawls, I guess. Or scrawls, I suppose. Well, there's a big fight from which Lila Shaney immediately teleports away again, having seen the real Xavier in the big machine and seeing what's up. Deathbird, who's the only hero left, now gets punched a whole lot. That's kind of her job here. It is. And the Scroll X-Men dialogue here is fun because it's like sort of in character, but it's also evil Scroll saying it. So Scrollbly says, Quit hogging all the fun. Let me finish her. To which Scrollverine responds, Out of my face, brat. Just because the Terran tolerates such insolence does not mean I shall. And I love the idea of Wolverine in his, like, wolverine voice, talking in this, like, stilted, villainous way. It's wonderful. But, unfortunately, he only gets so much time to do it because the Star Jammer arrives, X-Men style, which is to say, smashing through a wall. And a big scroll appears from its hold and then falls over. That's right, it's that wonderful trope where the bad guy comes out of the ship, and it turns out he was dead or unconscious the entire time, and the heroes are behind him, including Gambit. Bonjour, mes braves. Remember us? If, if Evil Xavier had been quicker on the uptake, he would have just been like, no, who the hell are you people? And there is another big fight, and this one is legitimately awesome, with lots of surprises and reversals and hero moments. Jim Lee can really draw a fight scene, like, they're engaging and exciting and easy to follow, which not all artists can do. So, what's your favorite part of this one? Okay, my favorite part is when Gladiator has Gambit on the ropes. So, you know that card flippy thing you can do where, like, you hold the deck between your uh, middle finger and your thumb and, like, the cards all flip straight out? He does that with the, with the entire deck. He charges and throws an entire deck of playing cards directly in Gladiator's face, and it's kind of awesome. More is more with the 90s. I like the part when a scroll tells Storm that she's run out of time to appreciate Forge's butt. The scroll kind of does say that. It's true. That really is the clear implication. Yes. <laughs> That's pretty great. So, Skrull Xavier tries to take over everybody's mind and kill them, you know, thus ending the battle. But nothing happens. What's up with that? Well, as it turns out, naked, circuit-covered actual Xavier is here to kick his ass, and does. Yeah, he just taps him on the shoulder, saying, Excuse me. 
At which point, good Charles Xavier beats the crap out of the evil scroll. Space has been good for Xavier's health. I mean, these scrolls are like gigantic. But we get some expository explanation, specifically that Xavier was mostly using the punching as distraction so that he could then use his telepathy to actually beat the war scroll into unconsciousness. This kind of reminds me of when Louise Simonson would have to sort of go through narration uh, loop-de-loops to justify the weird stuff happening in the art on the page when Liefeld would draw it. And then abruptly, everyone took off their shirts and put on different shirts. <laughs> exactly. Well, with their leader defeated, the good guys are victorious and the scrolls all conveniently disintegrate. What are they, the hand or something? I, I, I guess. Have there ever been scrolls who were the hand? I mean, the hand resurrects dead people. If they can find some dead scrolls who didn't disintegrate, they can put them in that sweet rad ninja outfit. I mean, Electro was a scroll for a really long time. Excellent point. It all comes together. Does it? Does it really? Eh, I'm gonna say close enough. Well, Lalandra is super mad at Deathbird for this whole usurpation violence attack thing that's been going on, but Xavier points out Deathbird did help. And Deathbird adds that while she signed the abdication under duress, she totally would have signed it anyway because she was pretty much done with this whole sensible ruler nonsense and wanted to go kick some ass in space. But then she sort of undoes the goodwill that she earned through that by grabbing Xavier and, like, surprise kissing him. And, you know, the body language kind of reminds me of that creepy World War II VJ Day statue, or uh, photo rather, of the sailor kissing the nurse where the nurse is totally not into it. I should point out, Miles is saying statue because there is a fucking 30-foot-tall version of this thing on the waterfront in our hometown, and it's horrible, and I hate it. Right, seriously. Like, I understand, you know, people won a war, and it was, it was a really good thing that the, the, the war ended up going the way it did, but, like, that doesn't give you an excuse just to grab a random nurse. Listeners, do not grab random nurses and kiss them, or, like, random people in general, unless you're in a context where that's, you know, acceptable. Or Charles Xavier. Yeah, you probably don't want to kiss Charles Xavier. I, there are just a lot of reasons for that. Basic social compact and consent rules continue to apply to, to even telepathic jerks. Yes, um, even if you're Deathbird. Well, anyway, that's Deathbird taking her leave of the whole situation. She'll be back a number of times in varyingly confusing contexts. Leaving the X-Men to ch catch up with actual Professor Xavier, who gets a convenient summary of the last several years of comics from Storm. A great deal has happened since your departure, and little of it I fear good. The school as you remember it is effectively no more. The responsibility is mine as leader of the X-Men. I did what I thought was right and necessary. Some of those decisions turned out to be mistakes. The world changed. We seemed to set a standard. Our enemies rose to meet it. Life devolved into an unending battle. So much effort spent on simple survival that we began losing sight of what we were fighting for. I gotta say, that reads to me just like sort of a summary and evaluation of the entire second half of the 1980s. I do feel like he'd really have been proud of the part where they all faked their own deaths. I think he would. I think probably when he hears about that part specifically, he, he totally will. But yeah, it's a reunion that I gotta say... I mean, I hadn't, like, specifically been holding my breath for it, but it's so nice to see Professor Xavier with the X-Men again, like, the real non-evil scroll Professor Xavier. Unfortunately, things haven't improved that much on Earth. In fact, there is serious trouble, and between what Xavier picks up from Storm's mind and what Banshee tells him about the evil, sexy happenings on Muir Island, Xavier discerns the nature of the enemy they're facing. The Shadow King. And this is a big deal. I mean, the Shadow King was kind of Xavier's nemesis, at least briefly. The Shadow King represents everything Xavier brought the X-Men together to protect the world from. 
And so him hanging out in space with his Empress Spacebird girlfriend and the badass space pirates that are their buds, that's not really an option anymore. He's got to get back to Earth, and he's got to help the X-Men fight the freaking Shadow King. Lalandra, who is remarkably sanguine about all of this, basically says, yeah, that's cool. You got responsibilities. I got responsibilities. I'll see you around, buddy. And so Xavier heads out with the X-Men, who despite their somewhat familiar uniforms, he's barely met most of. And that's it. Xavier and Lalandra will see each other again, but... Wow, I mean, I would have wanted to take, like, at least one more night together or something. I guess it's urgent, but but still. I don't think they've got time for that, because as they're saying their goodbyes back in New York, Stevie Hunter walks home alone at night when she is attacked by a very clearly possessed colossus. Yeah, he's all meddled up and speaking in super evil words that are clearly the Shadow King, and demands from her the school security codes, and that's going to lead us into the Muir Island saga, the next big event that itself will lead us into the relaunch of, like, everything in X-Men. Yeah, and we should say this is this is the place where that relaunch was announced it was in, in this issue's letter column, wasn't oh, it? Oh, I believe so. Yeah, I, I, I think so. So, yeah, I mean, there have been so many ends of eras lately, and indeed, this is one of them. But I gotta say, if it was gonna be an end of an era, I'm glad we got A, the reunion of Xavier and the X-Men, and B, some really fun space nonsense. Yeah, if you're gonna go out on a note, going out on... High-flying space opera is probably the way to do it. And even if we didn't get to see much of the real Star Jammers, I'm glad that they got yeah, a last bit in to be written by Claremont before going on to the grimmer and darker 90s. And with that, we are going to go on to your questions. So Trivial Ad asks on Tumblr, Aside from Wolverine with Sabretooth and Cyclops with Sinister and Master Mold, what other X-Men would you consider to have individual archenemies? Oh man, like... A bunch. I mean, do you want to just take turns here, Jay? Yeah, so I think arguably, we, we talked about the Shadow King toward the end of this episode. He is arguably in that role for Psylocke, Professor X, and maybe Storm as well. I mean, for Professor Xavier, in addition to the Shadow King and uh, that one Lucifer guy that nobody ever remembers, I mean, there's, <laughs> there's the Juggernaut. Like, uh... They're in opposition ideologically, power-wise, all sorts of things. Although that one does come and go since the Juggernaut's sometimes a good guy. And Xavier's sometimes a bad guy, I guess. Cable, of course, has both Apocalypse and Strife. Do you think Sebastian Shaw would count for Emma Frost? I mean, they're allied half the time. They're, like, super nemesis-y half the time. I I think you can make a pretty pretty strong case. I don't know about Arch Enemy, though. You know, if we're talking about Arch Enemies... Do we, how do we how do we address Xavier and Magneto in this list? I mean, I wouldn't call them enemies exactly. They're more just like opposing poles on a spectrum. They're like almost symbols as much as anything. Yeah, they're they're mutual antagonists. They're arch frenemies, maybe. <laughs> that is the official term, arch frenemies. Uh, okay, what else? Uh, Warlock and Magus. Oh, clearly, uh, Longshot and Mojo. Forge and the adversary. Jean Grey and the Phoenix, like sorta. Oh, I disagree with that. Okay, well, maybe not. They're strongly associated with each other, but I wouldn't describe them as, as, as mutual arch nemesis or as one of them as the other's arch nemesis. You know who does have a one persistent villain, though? Uh-huh. Havoc. Havoc's got the living the pharaoh. The living pharaoh. Havoc, your, your nemesis kind of sucks, dude. Um, okay. This is what happens when you don't finish your dissertation. <laughs> yeah, so uh, listeners, if you're in grad school, I mean, you better. Otherwise, living pharaoh, and that would just be embarrassing. All right, so uh, Iceman and his own bad decisions. And Angel slash Archangel and Cameron Hodge. I'm sure there are more we haven't thought of. Oh, 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 uh, Mirage and the Demon Bear. Oh, yeah, totally. Um, Okay, but we should probably stop there or we'll be here all night. So, Stalwart1000 asks on Tumblr, 
Are you going to continue doing listener shoutouts as the angry Claremontian narrator even after Chris Claremont leaves the books? Look, Stalwart 1000, writers come and go, but passive-aggressive narrative bullshit is forever. Probably. I mean, I feel like if we abandoned the angry Claremontian narrator, he'd start, like, judging us specifically. It's kind of like how you have to pass along that VHS tape in the ring or else you're fucked. Like, we have to keep delivering the angry Claremontian narrator to other people, otherwise we're going to be judged so hard. I was trying to think of whether there was an equivalent character that I could do, and all I could think of was Dr. Nemesis, who would be roughly the same degree of condescending. Maybe Mr. Sinister. Maybe, maybe. But, but I gotta say, I'm a little possessive of doing the Sinister voice all the time. It's one of my favorites. Well, Dr. Nemesis, then. I could do Dr. Hmm. I like narrate Angry Claremontian narrator better, but, you know, we'll figure it out. Speaking of Angry Claremontian narrators and so forth, we are an entirely listener-supported podcast, and some of those tiers of support come with acknowledgement on the show from a range of fictional characters and entities, so I believe I am turning things over today to, uh, evil Charles Xavier. To me, my X-Men. To me, so you can be destroyed! It would seem I've been wise in my choice of Skrull personation. No matter how suspicious I act, no matter how nefarious my deeds, the actual Charles Xavier has likely done worse. Telepathic consent issues with a comatose patient? Check. Enslaving an artificial intelligence as a training room? Check. Getting some students killed and then erasing everyone's memory of it? Also check. And that is why it troubles me all the more that I've been found out. Did Kelly Christensen Shanafelt use her superhuman senses to detect my artifice? Did Tony find a discarded 90s earring from my attack? It doesn't matter. Soon the Shi'ar Empire will be mine. And the Skrulls shall reign victorious. And we'll go from there to the aforementioned angry Claremontian narrator. You thought you knew your mentor, Douglas Broom. You trusted that all of the machinations of Tiernan de Burka would be in your best interest. Really. Some people just never learn. And with that... Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York and Portland, Oregon, and produced by Matt Hunter. New episodes of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men come out Sundays on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for extra content, visual companions to every episode, along with interviews, fan art, recaps, reviews, and more. And check out our live show coming up at New York Comic Con. Details to follow. This podcast is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and stay ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. Next week, it's crossover time with the very 90s story, Kings of Pain. Guest starring the New Warriors and the Alliance of Evil. 